So when I was in CJEP, um, I hung out a lot in the Christian fellowship room at John Abbott. Any John Abbott people here? few, okay. Um, there's a Christian fellowship room, if you didn't know, and right next door to that was an outdoor adventure club, which was um, full of people who were very weird and random. But the good news is that I was also weird and random, and my best friend, Corinne, who I hung out with a lot, was weird and random. And so we got along with those people really well. So we hung out with them quite a bit, and there were four guys in particular who um, were like quite tight with us, and uh, their names were Mark, Mark, Matt, or sorry, Mark, Mark, and John, and Paul. So there's these four guys. We called one Mark Hat Mark because he always wore a hat, and one Mark Sweater Mark because he always wore a sweater. We didn't know their last names. So that's how we differentiated between them. Hat Mark, Sweater Mark, John, and Paul. Um, and they knew that we were Christians, and they weren't that, that interested in God, but sometimes they asked us random questions about Jesus or about the Bible or whatever, and um, every time they did, we were like, yeah, let's witness to these guys. Um, but most of the time, we hung out and just goofed off and did, did things that were silly. Um, and so there was this one day, actually, sorry, around that time, there was a, a professional wrestler in the World Wrestling Federation named Stone Cold Steve Austin. Anyone heard of him? Anyone wake up this morning expecting to come to church and hear about World Wrestling Federation? <laughs> um, my parents are here, and they're probably like, what have, where did we go wrong? <laughs> like, why is my daughter preaching about World Wrestling Federation? So Stone Cold Steve Austin was famous for his catchphrase, which was Austin 316, which, and to put it in kind of nice terms, was like, I kicked your butt, and it, but he didn't say it that nicely. He said it a little bit more intensely. And so um, what he had done, though, was co-opted John 316 into his catchphrase, and then he, um, he made that part of the Bible popular. 316 was from the Bible, and people started to realize that. And so one day, I was hanging out with Corinne in uh, the Christian Fellowship Room, and that's what we did um, a lot. And, and so Mark, Mark, John, and Paul came in all excited, and they were like, we need to see a Bible. And we were like, Corinne and I were like, okay, here we go. Like, let's get a Bible into these guys' hands. This is the first time that they were actually, like, excited about seeing the Bible. And so uh, we grabbed one, and we handed it to them, and we're like, what do you guys want to know? And, and, and John goes, what's John 3.16? And so we flipped to John 3.16, and we, uh, we read it to them, and uh, they were like, okay, cool. And then, and then the Marks were like, what's Mark 3.16? So we flipped to Mark 3.16, and we read it to them, and then Paul was like, what's Paul 3.16? <laughs> we were like, uh, <laughs> sorry to say, there is no Paul 3.16, and he was pretty disappointed, but then we tried to, like, make it better by saying, like, Paul wrote almost half the New Testament, though, like, that's cool, and he was like, I guess, but he didn't have his own 3.16, and he was pretty disappointed about that. But I tell you that story because John 3.16 is a very recognizable verse, um, it's something that I've quoted, something that I've heard quoted countless times in my life. And when I was assigned to preach on John 3, I was like, eh, I hope that I can find something fresh in this very familiar story and passage. And so here's the cool thing about the gospel, though, is that this is the good news that, uh, of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And we're going to be looking at that today. And whether you're hearing it for the first time or you're hearing it for the millionth time, there's always something in it for you. There's always something for you to respond to in this good news. And friends, don't you feel like you need good news in this cultural moment that we're in? Like, death is at work in our world. 
You know, you, you look around and you see war and pain and disease and um, injustice and racism and genocide and famine. And within even ourselves, we see corruption and we see jealousy and weariness and dysfunction. And we know we're all dying. Death is at work in our world. We know that something's wrong with our world and we know that something's wrong with us. So I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to get into our passage today. Father, I pray that whether we're hearing these words for the first time or we've heard them a million times and we can recite them from memory, I pray that you would make them new and fresh to us today. Spirit, I pray that you would blow afresh on us, that you would open our eyes to the things that you have for us this morning from this passage. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in John 3 today, and I, before we get into that, I'm going to back up just a little bit and review what's been happening in John. Um, a couple weeks ago, Basil preached on John 2, where Jesus flipped the tables in the temple. Does any, was anyone here to see Basil actually flip those tables? I was sitting over here, and I was kind of jealous that I didn't get to preach that sermon because it looked like a lot of fun to be able to just actually flip a table on stage. Um, but after Jesus flip the table is where we're going to pick up the story. So we're at John 2, verse 23. And it says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs that he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Lots of people were believing in Jesus after they saw all these signs and miracles that he was doing, and Jesus knew that it was superficial faith. And so he wasn't entrusting himself to it. And so let's get into John 3 now. There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. Now here's a little bit of context about Nicodemus' life that we need to know. The world was not right for Nicodemus, just like we don't feel like it's right for us. The Roman Empire was in power at the time. They'd conquered Israel, they'd conquered surrounding uh, nations, they'd invaded, and now they were, they were ruling. And the Israelites were under a political rule that they didn't agree with. And so there were various ways that the Jewish people and the, the different groups of leaders approached this, um, this Roman rule, but the Pharisees' approach was a little bit unique. And if you've heard the word Pharisee before, you probably know that in the Gospels, Jesus is pretty hard on them. And they oppose Jesus probably the most out of any of the other groups that rule in Israel. Their approach to the Roman Empire being in power was that something, something happened along our history where we did something wrong. We didn't follow the law that God, was promised, that God had given us. All through the Old Testament, God had made it clear that if the Israelites believed in Jesus, or believed in God, and if they obeyed his rules, then they were going to be blessed, and nations around them would be destroyed. But that's not what was happening. Roman, the Romans were ruling them, and, and, and that's not what they were promised, and so they must have disobeyed somewhere along the line, somewhere in their history. And so the Pharisees went back to the law with a fine-tooth comb, and they're, they're going through the law, and what they decided to do was to take the rituals and the rules and the disciplines that were assigned to the priests who were serving in the temple, who went into the holiest places, who went into the very presence of God, the rules that they had to follow, and they decided to assign it to everyone. 
And so when you read the, Old, the New Testament, and especially the Gospels, you see Pharisees imposing these laws on people and, and it seeming to be beyond what the actual laws of the Old Testament was, was requiring of them. And so they carefully devoted themselves to living this way. They policed other people in order to make sure that they were doing that. And this was why they approached Jesus, they, they opposed Jesus so much because he was preaching a new freedom, a different kind of kingdom, a different set of standards to live by. And so Jesus had some pretty intense things to say to them because they were not getting it. They were missing the point. And Nicodemus was part of this Pharisee group. Nicodemus was a religious man, a very good man. He would have been born in a Jewish home. You know, he believed in God his whole life. He grew up in the synagogue. He probably went to youth group. He probably knew all the hymns and the songs that we sang in church. He served on all the committees and the teams in the synagogue to reach out into the community. He obeyed all of God's rules. He called other people to do the same. He was the upper echelon of Jewish people leader in the Jewish community, ruler of the Jews. In fact, Jesus refers to him as Israel's teacher. He's the teacher in Israel. He's the rabbi. So if anyone was going to get into the kingdom of God, it's going to be Nicodemus. And so it's undeniable that something's happening with Jesus. He's performing these signs and wonders. He's teaching in a way that no one's ever heard before. And Nicodemus and the Pharisees definitely couldn't deny this. And so Nicodemus decides to explore more about who this guy is. And so he goes to Jesus and he says, hey, it's clear that you're a good teacher and you're, you're from God. But remember what we just read in chapter 2, that Jesus knows the heart of man. He knows what's in man. And so Jesus doesn't even entertain this praise that Nicodemus is, is bringing to him because Nicodemus is missing the point. And here's how we know that Nicodemus was missing the point. There's a couple of things. So in this passage, in chapter three, we see that Nicodemus is coming to Jesus at night. And I've always read that passage as being like, well, of course he's like sneaking around because he doesn't want his Pharisee buddies to know that he might be associating with this new radical teacher. And so he's, you know, he's like coming to him on the DL, on the down low. He doesn't want anyone to know that he's, that he's hanging with Jesus. And that's a possibility. And there's other commentators who think that um, because Jesus was constantly surrounded by people, because he was doing all these signs and everyone was excited about him, that the nighttime was the only time that Nicodemus could actually like get time with Jesus that was uninterrupted. But when you read the rest of the book of John and you look at how he uses the, the terms light and darkness, we see something different. We see that John saying that Nicodemus coming at night to, to Jesus is making a theological commentary about the condition of Nicodemus's heart. You know, we read in John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And that's speaking about Jesus. Jesus is light. And he uses darkness or night to symbolize moral and spiritual darkness in a person. And so he's saying to Nicodemus that Nicodemus is in the dark and that he, um, is, Jesus is in the light. And in, in coming to Jesus, Nicodemus might just be moving from darkness into light. And the other way that we know that Nicodemus is missing the point 
is that Jesus doesn't even, like, acknowledge what he says. Like, you know, if someone says something nice about you, you're supposed to say thank you, right? Like, oh, you're clearly a teacher from God. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yes, I am. Jesus doesn't even acknowledge it. He just gets to the point of what Nicodemus needs to deal with. In verse 3, we read, Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. The Jews had been taught that they would see the kingdom of God just based on who they were and, and the obedience that they had, uh, that they did to, to God's laws. And Nicodemus, because he was like the teacher of Israel, was probably 98, 99% sure that he was going to get in. And Jesus is saying, you're not even going to see the kingdom that you so want to see, that you so want to be in. You don't get to be a child of God. You don't get to enjoy all of the blessings that come along with that because you're not born again. Now we've heard the term born again a lot if you've come to church for any amount of time. And uh, I don't usually get into Greek stuff when I'm preaching, but here's something that's helpful that I think will help us to, to frame what Jesus is, is saying here when he says you have to be born again. The word again is also translated um, from above. It's the word anothen, so it could be translated as again or from above. So Jesus is saying to Nicodemus that you must be born from above. It's not It's not something that Nicodemus would have ever really heard before. It's not something that he would um, have had on his radar. And, you know, he believed that his obedience was going to let him see the kingdom of God. He believed that because he was born a Jew, that he would see the kingdom of God. Like, it's just a given. And he believed that based on his status, based on his resume that we read before, because he's the teacher of Israel, he's going to get into the kingdom of God. Like, it's a no-brainer, obviously. Pastor John Tyson says that Nicodemus is writing his own story here about why he's qualified to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, no, you've got to scrap it. You've, you're missing it. And so, of course, G- Nicodemus is shocked and appalled and taken aback and just, you know, like, trying to process this. And so his response is, how? Like, how? How, how can I be born again? I'm a man. I'm an old man. How can someone be born again when they're old? And so Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Now, as as the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus would have recognized some of the phrasing that Jesus used in that passage. Jesus is referring to some things that happened in the the Old Testament, and they would have been familiar to Nicodemus because he knew the scriptures really well. And so the first thing that he would have heard was the, the, the words water and spirit. And that would have reminded him, first of all, of Genesis 1-2, where the earth is formless and empty and darkness is over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God is hovering over the waters. It's the spirit of God creating the, the world, bringing life. But also, the prophet Ezekiel writes about a time where God uses water in the spirit to address the the nation of Israel. And so in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, we read God saying to Israel, I will will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. 
in referring to this passage, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that his true need and our true need is that we need to be cleansed from our impurities, from our idolatry. We need to be given a new heart and a new spirit. We need a heart of flesh to replace the heart of stone that's in us. And we need to be made new. And then in verse 6, Jesus goes on to say that Nicodemus can't do this and none of us can do this by our own efforts. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. And as I said earlier, um, we know that there are things wrong in the world. And we know that we are part of the problem, that we, we, we're familiar with our own dysfunctions. We know our failings. We know our dissatisfactions. We know our selfishness. We want to we change ourselves. We want to be different. And if you spend any time scrolling through like Instagram or, or TikTok, um, you see posts and videos that are always showing like what they call glow-ups. You know, like, oh, look at how I changed my life and look how cool it is now. I did it. My, my new apartment that's all cool and pretty. You know, I lost this much weight or I gained this much muscle or, or whatever. Or there's manifestation where they're like, oh, look at my, look at my awesome life. It's because I told the universe what I wanted. I just put it out there and it came back to me. Everyone wants to change themselves. You know, maybe, maybe you, need a, you want a new house. You think that's going to be the thing. Or you want a, a better car. Or you want to move to a different city. You want to get a different job that's going to pay you more. Maybe even you want a, a better or a different spouse. We all feel this need to, to change and, and to try to reinvent ourselves in any way that we can, but that's all flesh, and that's what Jesus is saying here. Often the Bible talks about flesh as like the sinful nature, but what Jesus is referring to here is simply our humanity, that like we're flesh and bone. And so in our humanness, in our humanity, we can try to change all the external things about ourselves that we want to, but it doesn't change what we are inside or who we are inside that we're born enemies of God, that we're lovers of darkness, that we can't change our nature through our own efforts, and we can't be born from above through the efforts of our flesh. And so Jesus goes on to say to Nicodemus in verse 7, you should not be surprised that I'm saying this. You must be born again. Now this is something that's interesting Throughout the, the Gospels, Jesus uses the word must to refer to himself a lot. I must be about my father's business. I must share this good news of gospel with the, the, uh, about the kingdom of God with, with the nations. And there's only two times that he uses must to refer to humans, to refer to us. And this is one of those times. You must be born from above. You need God to give you a new heart. You need God to change you. It doesn't matter what you do. You need a new heart. It doesn't matter what you know, you need a new heart. And if, if you don't have that new heart, it's not going to make a difference. You must be born from above. We go on in verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And that would have again made Nicodemus think of something in the Old Testament. Actually, the very next chapter of Ezekiel, where God gives him a vision and he's taken to the edge of a pit full of dry, dead bones. 
And God says to him, prophesy to the bones, prophesy to the wind. And so he does, and the bones begin to grow flesh, and they begin to form into people, but there's still no breath in them. And so God says, prophesy to the wind again, and, and breath, the wind comes and breath enters these bones, and they start to raise up, and they stand before God as a giant army. And that's what Jesus is referring to. The Spirit brings life. The Spirit blows and brings life. And the new birth that Jesus is saying that each and every one of us needs is accomplished by the Spirit of God. And it can't be explained. Just like the wind, you can't see the effects, you can't see where it comes from or where it's going, but you can see that it's there. That's how God works in us. That's how his Spirit works in us. That we need to be changed and we don't even have to do it ourselves. Something's just got to blow on us. And that's a good thing because we can't do it on our own. Because flesh only gives birth to flesh and the spirit gives birth to spirit. And so of course Nicodemus is still dumbfounded, just can't wrap his brain around this. He is entering into a new paradigm. This is something that's completely um, other from what he's actually ever heard before. And so he again asked Jesus, how? Like, how can this be? How does the Spirit change us? How can we be born from above? And so Jesus scolds him for not knowing. He's like, you should know this. You're the, you're the teacher of Israel. And John Tyson says that Nicodemus, in this moment, is having intellectual and spiritual resistance to what Jesus is saying. Because intellectually, he's saying, okay, Jesus, like, you're a teacher. I acknowledge that. I, I, you know, you're a teacher. You're probably even from God. But he's not acknowledging Jesus to be God. And spiritually, he's always assumed that as a leader of the pack of the Israelites, that he will enter the kingdom of God. That he will be within God's salvation. And Jesus is saying, you're not even in his plan for salvation right now. And like Nicodemus... Many people have intellectual and spiritual objections to Jesus and who he is. You know, there's, you know, objections that, oh, I've achieved this. I've accomplished this. I'm this good at what I do. Or, you know, my life is working out fine. I don't need Jesus. Jesus is saying that these are things that need to be dealt with in each of our lives. And so he goes on to say in, in verse 12, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. You know, all of those things that we think are going to get us into heaven, you know, oh, of the kingdom of God, oh, we're going to, you know, I'm, I'm this good at stuff, I, you know, I go to church, I do my devotions, I do all of these things. Those are, those are us trying to climb into heaven, but we can't get there on our own because we've never been there before. What, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is like, I came from heaven down to earth. I can get there. I can get you there, but you can't get there on your own because flesh gives birth to flesh. So how do we get there? Jesus is about to tell us. In verse 14, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So once again, Jesus is drawing Nicodemus back to the Old Testament, back to the scriptures that he knows so well. And he's referring to something that happened to the Israelites after God had taken them out of Egypt and was leading them through the wilderness, hopefully to the promised land, eventually to the promised land. And you can read about it in Numbers 21. But what happens is the Israelites have short memories 
about what God's done for them. And so they start to uh, forget that God had shown them kindness and goodness. And they get impatient, like, oh, this is taking so long, my feet hurt. I'm walking forever. They start to doubt God. They start to complain. And their hearts start to wander after other idols. And so they begin to grumble about everything. And they're like, oh, there's no bread, there's no water. We detest this food that you've given us. And so God sends a bunch of venomous snakes into the Israelite camp. And if you're bitten by one of those snakes, then you get sick and you die and there's no cure. And so obviously the Israelites are like, oh, we need God. You know, sorry, God. And so they run to Moses and they're like, Moses, pray to God and, and ask him to take away the snakes. And so Moses does, and God says, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to raise a snake up on a pole, and anyone who's been bitten by a snake can just look at that snake that's risen up on a pole, and then they won't die. They'll be given new life. And so Moses does it. He raises a snake, and everyone who's been bitten looks, and, and they're, they're saved and that's actually the modern symbol that we have for medicine, right? It's a snake on a pole. That's where it comes from. And this is, this is a story of grace because we have the same tendencies as the Israelites. It's a, rea- it's a picture of all, of all of our sin, all sin in the world. We doubt God. We disbelieve him. We grow dissatisfied with his ways. Our hearts wander after other idols. And we say to him, God, I'm not satisfied with you. I need romance in my life. Or I need comfort. Or I need money. Or I need, you fill in the blank. We aren't different in our hearts. And so once you're bitten, you need to be saved and you can't save yourself. You need someone to give you the antidote for this disease. Sin is a condition that we have. It's something that we do, but it's also a condition that we're born with, and it's something we can't save ourselves from. We need someone to give us the antidote. And of course, Jesus is saying that one day he would be lifted up on the cross, and all we would have to do is look to him to be saved. But the difference is that the renewal that the Israelites received by looking at that snake on the pole was renewal of human life, renewal of the flesh. It was going to decay again they were eventually going to die again. But the renewal that we receive by looking at Jesus on the cross is a different kind of life. It's a life that never decays, and it lasts for all eternity. When we look to Jesus, we're given this life, and it's so simple. And why is it so simple? Why do we just have to look? Why don't we have to do all the things that Nicodemus was having to do or thought he had to do? Well, now we're coming to John 3.16, and here's the reason. Because God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. John uses the word world here to refer to human society that's organizing itself in rebellion against God. And that's all of us. 
That's the disease that we need to be healed from. We don't naturally desire the things of God. We don't naturally desire God. But God still loves the world so much that he wants to give us true life. You know, God's not an angry, unloving, unforgiving God. Although there's a lot of people in the world who think that, who believe that to be true. And maybe some in this room believe that. You know, sometimes we have to, we think we have to persuade him to love us. Like, okay, I'm gonna do my devotions and go to church and check all these boxes and I'm gonna make sure I pray for at least an hour a day and um, I'm gonna be better than at least this other person and I'm gonna go to church and I'm gonna go to Sunday school and I'm gonna go to youth group and I'm gonna memorize some scripture and I'm gonna do this and this and this. And then God will love me more. And then in the weeks where we have a bad week and we don't do those things, we're like, oh God, you know, I just went down a few notches on, on God's love scale. And now I have to persuade him all over again. And we think God disapproves of us. But what Jesus is saying here in this passage is that he is not here to condemn. That God loves us and he wants us to know him. He wants to save the world through his son. That's God's heart for the world. And we get Jesus' spiritual bank account as our own if we just look to him. All our debts are paid by Jesus. All we have to look, do is look to him and be healed. And so for many of us sitting here, like I said, this is probably familiar. Um, you've probably read this passage, you know, hundreds of times, maybe even thousands. Sometimes it becomes too familiar. So maybe you're sitting here today um, and you've been a Christian for a long time but you've lost the wonder of what Jesus did for you. My encouragement to you would be to ask God to reignite that wonder and to, to give you the delight in what, what he's done for you, what he accomplished through Jesus. You know, you will never be punished for your sin. You, will, you didn't have to earn it. It was, it was just available to you. You were given a life that will last forever, that will never decay. A new identity, a new family, a new community, a new joy, a new freedom. That's what Jesus did for you. God's changing you from the inside out through your relationship with him. And if you've lost the wonder of this, I would just encourage you to ask God to just reignite that within you. And maybe you're looking around at the world we live in and, you know, the, the wrong political leader's in power right now. Or maybe the right one is, depending on what your politics are. Or our culture is just becoming increasingly polarized and strained. There are so many problems in the world. Daryl Johnson says that our only hope for our cities and our country and our world is revival. And that's a radical change of human nature, being born from above, affected by the Son of God through his spirit. You know, flesh can never pull off the peace and the justice and the healing that the kingdom of God can. And that's what our world needs. But the spirit of God can do that. And so are, are we sharing this message with other people? Or are we, are we heaping the hatred onto the pile? We're just adding to it. Are we portraying an angry, unforgiving, unloving God in the ways that you address things that are happening, in the ways that you disagree with people? Or are you reflecting God's heart for the world through how you interact with others? Are you sharing this message of the gospel that's simple, 
just look to Jesus? Or are we being like Pharisees where we're adding things in? You, and also, you have to. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. So instead, we need to be doing whatever it takes to reach the people who haven't heard this message yet and to tell them about this deep and wonderful and full life that God brings. This is God's heart for us and for the world. And this is what we believe our mission to be at Westview. Our mission statement says that we are a community pursuing the restoration of all people and all things through a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Pursuing the restoration of all people and all things through a living relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. We're called to bring this message to Montreal and to beyond. And the spirit is blowing. And where the spirit blows, human beings come to life. And we don't know how it happens. And we don't know when it happens. But we know that it happens. And so... This is the wonder of the grace that Jesus is opening up to Nicodemus and he's opening it up to us and he's opening it up to the world. And if you're here today and you haven't made that decision to follow Jesus yet, the things are starting to make sense to you, maybe for the first time, maybe you've been thinking this for a while and you just haven't acted on it, I would encourage you just to respond today. And, and, and do that just by looking to Jesus and saying, I believe that you are God. I believe that I can't save myself from this disease. I believe that you came from heaven so that I could be born from above and I don't have to try to earn my way there. Say that you believe that, you believe that Jesus died on the cross to remove the venom of your sin, to cure you from what you've done and from the condition that you have that you can't cure yourself. And then trust that Jesus took your place to save us. So I'd encourage you not to hesitate and to do that today. And then if you want to, you can come and talk to me after. I'll be up here at the front or you can uh, come and talk to, uh, pray with one of our prayer partners or a prayer team that will be up here and we would love to talk with you. You know, we don't hear much about Nicodemus in the rest of chapter three. John starts to kind of uh, talk about other stuff. But it's, it's pretty clear that he doesn't lay down his pharisaical robes and follow Jesus right there. He didn't, he didn't choose in that moment to accept this simple message from Jesus. We don't know for sure what happened to him, but we do see him appear in a couple of other places in the book of John. In John 7, he's standing up for Jesus a little bit, and he, the Pharisees are trying to arrest him. And so he's like, hey, guys, like we don't arrest people without hearing from them usually. So let's, like, let's not get ahead of ourselves. So that's one instance. But the major instance that we see is in John 19 where Jesus has been crucified, and he's died. The Son of Man's been lifted up. And Joseph of Arimathea um, asks for permission to remove his body to bury him. And, and Nicodemus comes alongside Joseph of Arimathea. And he spends a fortune on like 75 pounds of spices, which I don't, I don't know if you've held spices in your hand. That's an astronomical amount to me, something I can't fathom. But he spends this fortune on 75 pounds of spices to help with Jesus' burial. And in doing that, he's aligning himself publicly with Jesus' shame. And so we think that he got it. We think that he believed in the end. He didn't get it at first. But we think that he got it. And if you want to see the kingdom of God 
All you have to do is look to Jesus and be saved. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you sent Jesus to save us and not to condemn us. Because on our own efforts, we could not save ourselves from condemnation. Only Jesus can do that, and we confess that today. And Father, I pray that you would help us see the ways that we are just trying to measure up and to get in on our own. And I pray that you would help us to understand that you are a loving God. That because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, that you can't love us more than you do right now. If we've claimed Jesus' record as our own, there's nothing that we could do that would make you love us less. Father, I pray that you would reignite a delight and a wonder in what you've done for us in this life that you've given us that will not decay, that will last for eternity. And I pray for those in the room who have, or hearing from home who have not yet accepted this amazing free gift, this, this amazing life. I pray that you would stir spirit. I pray that you would blow. And we pray that humans would come to life. Father, we thank you that it's that simple. We thank you that we don't have to measure up. And I pray that we would walk away from here free from the things that might have been in, enslaving us before. In Jesus' name, amen. So fun being short. Short person, tall chair. Welcome to my life. So this is a time when we ask questions and um, the person who's preached in the morning will respond with some options to answers. They're not always an answer. There's more discussion always, right? Uh, but before we do that, if you have children who are aged four to grade four, we invite you to go and get them now so they can be part of the responses to our questions. And if you have a question that you would like to ask, you have two options. If you're online, you can text it in. And if you're in the room, you can text it in also. Or you can raise your hand and uh, Linda in the back will, um, yes. Okay, did everyone hear that? So your kids will want to be picked up around 11 or shortly right after that. Okay, it'll be up on the screen. There we go. The main thing we want you to know is that it's age four now, which is different from before. Age four to grade four. Yeah. So anybody in here have a question that they would like to ask? You can raise your hand and uh, we will get to you. So I have a question here. How do you approach someone who is academic and intellectual about all things theology but don't have a personal relationship with Christ and don't walk their life as a good person? Hmm. I mean, flesh gives birth to flesh, so uh, I, would, I would prayerfully, that would, that's how I would do it. Um, we can't change ourselves and we can't change other people. And I've known people in my life who are like that. And I've been like that myself at times where 
Um, I've known stuff. I know it. And I actually had this conversation with Pastor Charlie before he left on vacation and um, I was talking about like, you know, like sometimes I do my devotions and I get like really into like opening the commentaries and what does this word mean and what does that mean? And, you know, and I'm studying and I'm studying and then I close my Bible and I'm like, I did some good work today. And then I think later, but did it change me? Did it draw me closer to Jesus? And that's the spirit working in my life and that the, the spirit has to work in that person's life. And so my answer is simply pray for the spirit to blow. How many of you saw the passage this morning and thought, oh, John 3.16, I know that. <laughs> right? So anyone here have a question that they would like to ask? Okay, so there's a question here. Um, how do you in your devotional life, not come across as a know-it-all? Like, what do, you, what, what do you do when you kind of go, oh, same passage, I know that story? Um, well, I have the uh, honor of working with a spiritual director who um, helps me walk through that. But um, one of the things that she encourages me to do is, is to sit with the passage that I've studied and read and maybe not to like directly go to the commentaries, but to sit first and ask God, like, what do you, what do you want me to see from this? Uh, what do you, where am I in this passage? And in, in, if I'm reading a story, where am I in this story? And what's Jesus saying to me directly? And um, what, what am I called to out of this passage? Um, and just keeping that mindset that like, it's not about like, oh, I'm so smart, look at me, because I'm a nerd and I can have that tendency. And, um, but to make sure that I'm actually listening and, and pausing and, and giving that time and not just being like, studied it, check, and moving on. So I'm going to take this opportunity to plug spiritual direction. <laughs> if you are interested in having somebody to walk with you uh, with, through your spiritual walk, just uh, come and see me later. We can chat a little bit more about that. So one of the things that um, I struggled with when I first became a Christian was um, I had read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and decided that I wanted to follow Jesus, but I didn't really understand who Jesus was. So sometimes it's confusing trying to follow when you don't actually um, know the full picture and you're aware that you don't know the full picture. But like, so what do you do with that? Who do you go to? Our, our Christian life was never meant to be lived alone, and we live in an individualistic culture where um, we have that tendency to just be like, well, I did my personal devotions, but it's actually in conversation with other people. That's why the Bible encourages us to meet together, to not giving up meeting with the saints, um, to be able to talk to people about this and to, to openly say like, hey, you're farther along in this journey than I am. Can you like help me understand this part that I don't understand? And, and as we get to know Jesus more and more, the more we read about him, the more we, we read through the Gospels, the, the closer we feel to him, the, the more we know him, the more God reveals to us, um, the more that we can help each other walk through that together. Right on. So you didn't really talk too much about repentance today. Jesus tells us to repent. Where does that fit in? And, 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 like, do you have to keep doing it, or is it once is good enough, or what? 
repentance is something that we should be practicing every day. And, and I didn't go into it because there's a lot that uh, was in this passage and it wasn't going <laughs> to, it was going to be a long sermon, friends. Um, but repentance is a huge part of it. When you're looking to Jesus, you're looking to him and, and changing directions from what you were looking at before. Um, you're, you're laying down your fleshly attempts to, to measure up to him. You're laying down the, you're recognizing that you can't, um, that you can't do it on your own and you're walking away from the things that are taking you away from, from Jesus. And um, what, what we, when we talked about the Israelites in the desert, like that they repented um, when they came to Moses and said, we realized that we didn't do the right thing and can you, tell, can you ask God to take the, this away because this is awful. Um, they, that, was, that was their repentance. And so repentance is a huge thing and yes, I didn't, I didn't get into it today, but if you wanna know more, you can come and ask us later. I'm sorry. Uh, I think I'm saying I'm sorry as part of repentance, but repentance is actually just, it, it's like literally turning 180 degrees away from what you were doing before and walking in a different direction. Wow, that sounds difficult sometimes. So we have a question in the back. Hi, my name is uh, Eve Jolicoeur. Thanks for taking the question. Um, earlier, uh, you say that Jesus Christ did not come to the world to condemn the world. However, how do we Christians often condemn human beings who to their actions, of course, are not acceptable, but we, we, we often uh, condemn people? Why is that? I think it's because we add to the message of the gospel. Jesus came to save the world and not to condemn it. And sometimes we decide that we have to add to it. And so um, there, there are times when we, um, you know, we're like, oh, that person shouldn't be doing that and I'm gonna let them know, you know? And then, and then in that we're per perpetrating, you know, unloving, an unloving God, not a, a God who's like, hey, like, come to us. You know, obviously you can call people on things, but Jesus said to preach the truth in love, to always speak the truth in love. And so when we're condemning and where we're coming from a place of like, oh, you guys are so bad because you're not doing what you should be doing. We're holding people to standards that Jesus didn't hold them to. If, they, if, if you're not decide, if you haven't decided to follow God, then you're not held to the same standards of living that Christians are. And so I think we forget that sometimes. Okay. I'm 59 years old, and I have, I grew up in a Christian home, and I got it out of my box, and I met so many people who are different, different paths from me, even opposition, but I believe that Jesus Christ preaches love, and once we get to know somebody and not to quickly judge them, and we realize that they too are victims of their circumstances. And I think the best way we can reach out to them to bring them to Christ is to show love. And I think that's what Jesus Christ represents. And from my experience, I've been able to reach to them uh, in a productive, effective way. Thank you. Yeah, well said, thanks. We have a question at the front here. So while Linda's getting there, we'll ask you this question. What is being born of water and of spirit? What does that mean? 
So being born of water and spirit means, that, um, as I re- referred to in Ezekiel 36, it's um, God cleansing us not only with water. And some people think that means baptism, but it's it's kind of um, not a not a hundred percent as to whether that is what is being referred to because that wasn't in the uh, the paradigm of the people at the time. Um, but being born of water and the spirit means that God sprinkles water on us and cleanses us us and then blows on us to bring us to life by, by the spirit go ahead thank you cheryl for your message you have given us today um, as is my custom i take notes when i listen to a message and you've given us many points to think about today um, one of the things you mentioned in your message is that the Israelites, and I think you're referring to the Israelites in the wilderness, have short me- had short memories, and we can all agree with you there. And I think we can also agree that it wasn't just the Israelites in the wilderness, but subsequent generations had short memories. As you say that, it, it makes me think about us, about myself, and about us all, how we all tend to have short memories and how we forget. You know, when I read the epistles of Paul, I can sense his repentance and regret over things he did. He persecuted Christians. He was there when Stephen was martyred. He felt personally responsible and he realized his guilt and sins. And I think the rest of his life, he was so grateful and thankful for having been saved and rescued from his sins. He remembered his past till the day he died, I'm sure, although he knew that he had been forgiven. The same with Peter, you know, having denied Jesus three times. So the point I take from, one of the points I take from your message is that we shouldn't forget our past. And we need to pass it on. The problem with the Israelites is not only did they have short memories in the wilderness, I mean, I mean four decades after they came out of Egypt, they're, they're looking back, you know, fault with false memories. How good a life they had in Egypt. You know, how quickly we forget and how our memories are deceptive. And, you know, and we, we forget maybe the bad and just remember a little bit of the good. So I think one of the messages I received from you in that message is that we need to remember our past, our sins. You know, there's a philosopher that uh, lived in the... Uh, early uh, 20th century, George Santaniana, a Spanish philosopher. And as a student of history, I I remember this uh, quote that he's famous for, those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it, is one famous quote he made. And historians remember that, I think. And I think we need to remember that too, because if we forget our past and brush over it, um, I think we lose out. I think we can can fail to be careful and may repeat the same mistakes. We need the Holy Spirit to change us and to help us not make the same mistakes again. So uh, you, you, I think, uh, pointed us in the right direction when you referred to the mission statement that Westview has. Uh, so I thank you for that. And you also made the point that we should not lose the wonder of what God has done for us. So I just wanted to share with you my thoughts on the message you brought to us and and highlight uh, what your message said to me. Thank you.
Yeah, there's a, a verse in, in the beginning of uh, the book of Judges that um, kind of talks about exactly what you're talking about. You know, the, the Israelites had all this stuff that, um, that God did for them, and they were, they were told to tell their, the next generations, but they failed to do that. And so it says in the book of Judges that there was a generation that was raised up, and they didn't know what God had done. And, and so that's exactly what you're talking about. You know, they, they had short memories, but we also have short memories, and so we should be preaching that to ourselves, what Jesus has done, but also telling others in order for us to remember. Okay, I see Andy in the back there. And just Thank so you. so helpful to, to get called back to the gospel today. Uh, I was struck by the way that um, you pointed out that Nicodemus, it's not a complete story that we get. We get a picture of somebody who's in process uh, as opposed to really knowing exactly what happened. And I, at the same time, you point out that Nicodemus really wrestled with what does it mean to be changed? Uh, and, and is it the law that changes us or is it actually something else? And Jesus points out that it's actually the spirit. I wonder if you can just comment on that, that tension of, of kind of living in between. It's really clear what change looks like when there's an external law that's applied to us that says act like this and you're in. But Jesus points to this new way that says the spirit's gonna come and you're actually gonna be made new and yet in the picture of Nicodemus, we know that there's this process, this awkward in-between of like, of just the spirits clearly at work in his life, but you don't have the whole picture yet. We, we live like that. Can you comment on how that, the story actually gives us a sense of, of what it means to be spirit-filled people who are, who are living in-between, who are wanting to be changed, and at the same time, it's, it's not an external law that's just being applied to us. Instead, we're actually being renewed from within. So um, there's, there's a process that we like to call sanctification, and it's basically God forming us day by day, moment by moment, into the person that he wants us to be, which is to look like Jesus. And none of us will arrive there until we, uh, we reach heaven, until we enter the full kingdom of God. But it is a process that, that God is doing, and, and I made reference to this in my sermon where I said, like, through your relationship with him, he is renewing you. And he is bringing you to that process. And so it's something that we partner with God in. It's not just this passive thing where we lay there and, and God is, is just saying like, okay, well, let me change this about you today. And you're like, okay, cool. Good job, God. Like we're actively working with God to do that. And so we're looking, we are, we are working to change the things about us that are not pleasing to God, but we can't do that on our own. We have to do that in partnership with the spirit in partnership with what God's doing in our lives. Thank you, everyone, for your questions, and uh, we're going to start worship once again. So, Father, we thank you for um, Cheryl's message and for what you're stirring within our hearts. Um, and while we keep that in the back of our mind, we want to um, lift our voices to you and praise you for um, being the loving God who calls us back into relationship. In Jesus' name, amen.